Good morning. I have the privilege of reading the scripture for today. The passage is going to be Joshua, starting in chapter 1. Your pew Bible is 178 and 180. All right, you're going to have to use your fingers here because we're going to be at 1, 1 through 9, 3, 1 through 4, and chapter 4, 19 through 24. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Joshua 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, in all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according that all is written in it. For you will make your way for I for you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have a good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua 3, 1 through 4. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out for Satim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Joshua four, nineteen through 24. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. 
Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. As the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. That you may fear the Lord your God forever. Please be seated as we reflect on God's word. If you ever wondered what I looked like when I was 25, (laughs) you just saw it. Thank you, Zachary, my son. I love the quote on the front of the bulletin from Herman Melville, the author of Moby Dick. He writes this, the pulpit is ever the earth's foremost part. All the rest comes in its rear The pulpit leads the world. Yes, the world is a ship on its passage out, not a voyage complete. And the pulpit is its prow. So God has established the local church to be the the hope of the world. And even though it has a number of flaws, it's God's uh, anointed agency to lead people because Your life and my life in this world is not a voyage complete. We don't get to the end of our lives and say, well, we've completed the voyage. That's the the end of the preface to the real voyage. And so Melville says, says it well, the pulpit is the prow which leads people home. Let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that as we... We come together to try to um, stand behind you as the captain of our ship, of our lives, and you lead us on this voyage out of this world into eternity, that we would have the courage to, to follow after you, we'd have the wisdom to know your words, and that we would walk in your ways. Over the, amen, over the years... Ready to keep talking. <laughs> Over the years, most of you heard me say that in my toolbox are two tools, a hammer and a cell phone. Because if a hammer doesn't fix the problem, I need to immediately call somebody. I don't need to try to fix anything because my fixing something doubles the problem. I don't know if any of you are like that. 
So ever I get involved, whatever the problem was, it multiplies when I walk away. And so uh, many years ago, in 1991, when I bought my first house, uh, we kind of had a, a house that was the pie shaped on a cul-de-sac. And on the left-hand side, I wanted to just put up a fence, just down one side. And I thought, how hard can this be? I'm not trying to turn a corner. I'm not trying to put up a gate. I'm not trying to do anything fancy. And at Lowe's, they have these eight-foot uh, pre-made panels. So you don't have to really do much. You have to just put in nine posts in a straight line, and you, then you put up these eight panels, and presto, you have a fence. And so I thought, look, it's mostly a hammer. Other than a plumb line, it's mostly a hammer. Sure, I can, surely I can do this. So without any help, I, I draw the plumb line, and I, I sink these posts in, and I cement them in. I wait a day to make sure they're all straight and they're stiff. And so the next day, I take the first panel out, and I, I nail it to the first post, and then I come over here and I nail it to the second post, and I stand back and go, this is awesome. This looks so great. And I measure it to make sure everything's great. And, and it's just a little bit higher on one end than the other. In fact, it was just a quarter of an inch off of perfection. So I was like, no one's going to notice. So I take the next panel and I put it next to the panel, the foundational panel. And of course, I've got to start a quarter of an inch higher. And I thought, well, so nobody notices. But then when I tacked that up and then I went over here to the end, now the next panel was three inches too high. You can see it's starting to angle up. And so I thought, well, I'm going to notice that. Plus, I've got six more panels to put up. So I did a quick calculation and figured if I continued on, the last panel would be 30 feet into the air. Not an effective fence. So, so what did I have to do? I had to go back to the foundational panel and make sure it was just right. Because every other panel got its measurement from that foundation. Now, that true story was the opening story 15 years ago in June of 2002 for this sermon. Because we're having our very first Founders Day. You didn't have to go through an Inquirer's weekend. You just had to come and get free barbecue and you got a t-shirt. And so it was 30 of us and we launched this journey that we call Christ Community Church. And every year when we celebrate Founders Day, I basically say the same sermon. So many of you, how many have heard this sermon already? So I can see who's going to sleep during the time. Some of you have heard it 15 times. But I just want us to make sure we remember why we got started. What, what were the core things? What were the foundational panel? Because in, in 50 years, in 75 years, in 100 years, we're all gone. And there's going to be another generation that's going to tack itself up next to our foundational panel. And if we just get a quarter of an inch off in two or three generations... You can be way off from what the Bible actually says. And so Joshua has served as this person who's founding the nation. He's bringing, he, he's becoming the leader. He's following Moses and he's taking the people of God from the, from the desert or from the wilderness and into the promised land. And so when I think about this story, the three main foundational points are God's chosen leadership, 
God's word, and then courage. Leadership, God's word, and courage. So let's talk about leadership. In, in the Bible, we repeatedly see the importance of leadership. And it begins right in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1. Adam and Eve were especially made in the image of God, but Adam was given a leadership role. And he was the one who was going to lead. He was going to lead his wife, and he was going to begin to lead this new family in the garden. And then what happens? Genesis 3 comes along, and Satan is introduced. And Satan begins to question God. He he begins to plant a suspicion in Eve's mind about God. Can God really be trusted? And then the first thing he attacks is God's word. And tragically, Adam, as the leader, didn't defend his wife and didn't defend God's name. And so we have the fall. We have the first sin. Man and woman walking away from God, preferring their own ways, creating suspicion about who God is. And we know Adam's leadership role because when God comes back walking in the garden, what's the very first thing he says? Adam, where are you? Not Eve, not Adam and Eve, but I'm going through my chain of command, God's saying. I've set up a certain chain of command. I'm coming back to the leader. I'm saying something's gotten messed up, Adam. You're the one who's responsible. And so when you think about the fall in Genesis chapter 3, the primary problem was a failure of leadership. Adam should have stood in between Satan and uh, his wife, his bride, which is exactly what we see with the cross. Adam should have protected God's name, not let any suspicion come in, but, but Adam fails So godly leadership was designed to make God's name look great. You notice in chapter 4, verse 24 of Joshua, what's the whole purpose of these people coming over and starting a new land? So all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that they may fear the Lord your God forever. That's the whole purpose. I'm establishing a people so that all the rest of the nations, like a city on a hill, like a a light that can't be hidden, I'm wanting everyone to look at this people and say, God, their God is great. Their God is glorious. That's the whole purpose for Adam's existence. That's the whole purpose for Israel's existence. That's the whole purpose of our existence. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God, to bring glory, to shout out to the world about how glorious God is. Ravi Zacharias makes this observation about godly leadership. He says this, there are no bona fide mass movements. It just looks that way. Really, at the center of the column of a mass movement is a man or a woman who knows their God and where their God is going. There is no abstract movement moving ahead, yet there are individuals. There are people who are moving ahead, and therefore the cause of Christ is going forward. It's not just a, a group of people called a church. There's, there's somebody, some person or small group of people are, that are at the center of the column, and they know where they're going. They're moving in a certain direction, and then the mass movement moves with them. Now, why is this important for us? Well, it's been 15 years. It's hard to believe. 
And I don't know how many more years I have. I hope quite a few. But one day will be my last day here. And you'll be tasked, all of you, with the responsibility of making sure that the person who stands behind this pulpit follows God's word. You just have to have that. No, no matter the personality, no matter the leadership skills, no, no matter the charisma, nothing else matters but somebody who's got their ear attentive to God's word and is leading in that direction. I mean, Zachary and Morgan, when my two children, they were eight and ten when we started Christ Community Church. And so we, were, we would remember getting all the toys together. We would have bought a bunch of diapers and stuff for the nursery. We just put it all in our little Honda Civic, and we drove it over to Temple Baptist Activity Center. We shook the crumbs out of the basket, of our bread basket, and we used it to pass around. And yes, Sam was right, painfully on that very first Sunday with no piano. I said, hey, most of you know holy, 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 right? Just sing with me. And I just started singing, holy, holy. And it was so painful, <laughs> so painful. It was not a holy moment in any way. I left thinking, I'm starting a church, and I wouldn't come back if I wasn't <laughs> like the founder. But we remember those days, and they're, they're, they're great days, but, man, they go by so fast. And so one day it'll be my last turn and it'll be somebody else's turn and it'll, it'll be your task to say, we've got to have somebody at the center of the column who's really leading and they're moving after God and they're following after God's word. Now, there's two primary characteristics of this leader, the person that's the center of the column like Joshua was. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1 in Joshua, the Lord spoke to Joshua. The, the shepherds, the shepherd of the church, in this case, the shepherds, the elders of the church, their primary concern is to listen to God and lead from his word. You, re, you remember that in Acts when uh, the widows aren't getting fed and they've got to have a division of labor. And Peter says, well, there's, there's, there's a certain group, the apostles, they, gotta, they have to devote themselves to the, the preaching of God's word and prayer. That's their main focus. And so we have to have people who are really listening to God and leading for his word because we don't want a leader who's following the mood of the congregation. We don't want a, a leader who's following the mood of the culture. We don't want a leader who's following their own mood. We want somebody who's in tune with God and following after God, that there's just one single audience. And we've got to be careful that, that this person isn't easily distracted by, by popularity or novelty. We, we are bombarded in our culture, whether it's the church or something else, just popularity and novelty. What's going on? What's happening? What's hot right now? And you just import it into the church as if that's going to be it. And it's very easy to get distracted. Many years ago, and I've used this, this illustration many times, there was a reality television show. Now, you realize reality television, that's an oxymoron. That's, there's nothing close to reality about reality television. But it was going to be called the Pulpit Masters. And here was their, their little commercial to try to get you excited about it. Could you be America's next inspired leader? 
to make a difference in millions of people's lives. Just listen to how they've baited that hook. Are you filled with a fire and passion of God? We are looking for someone who can wow the pants off an audience. And you get three minutes to preach your way to stardom. Now, I'm not trying to wow anybody's pants off. Just you keep your pants on. But do you see do you see how attractive that is? We've got to have this charismatic person that within three minutes you're jumping out of your pants. You're so excited about it. And that's exactly what the culture feeds us to try to want. And that's not what we're looking for. We're not trying to wow anybody's pants off because on Sunday morning, you are not the primary target. Did you know that? You are not the primary target. There's just one in the audience, and that's God. And we're all coming together to try to make a lot of him. That's the whole goal is to come and make much of God. And when we make much of God, so many benefits, so many blessings spill out to us. But when we come to church trying to make much of ourselves, oh, man, we're in all kinds of trouble at that point. Many of you probably read this recent blog post. The title is, Why the Church Doesn't Need Any More Coffee Bars. Says this on my social media feed, I've been seeing a lot of churches boast of cool, trendy new initiatives with pictures of coffee bars that resemble Starbucks and lightning that lighting that resembles Broadway. I've read catchy sermon titles and noticed how many people have bought brought the movies into their sermons. My husband passed away in February after two year battle with cancer. Towards the end, he was paralyzed and unable to get out of bed. He never said how much he appreciated the coffee bar at church. He never once mentioned the lighting in the sanctuary. He never told me how cool it was for churches to put couches on the platform. Instead, he talked about Jesus. He quoted scriptures. He reminded me of sermons, sang songs. And prayed. That's, that's what we're about. We're unapologetically about that at Christ Community Church. If you're looking for, I'm not saying coffee's bad, but if you're looking for a couch and coffee and lighting and something to wow your pants off, this won't be, this will never be the place for you, I hope. Because we're trying to make much of God. We're trying to come in from that world to say there's got to be something more than all of that. All of that just isn't ultimately satisfying. My heart hungers for something greater than that. And where can it be found? It can only be found in one place and in one person. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. So we are trying to make much of him without apology. The second characteristic is the leader must be a servant. So the first characteristic, they really got to be zeroed in on God. The second characteristic, they must be a servant. You notice just in the opening verses of chapter 1, Moses referred to as a servant three different times. Moses, one of the greatest people in all of history. God just calls him his servant. Moses, my servant. And now Joshua is going to transition into this role of servant. 
In the New Testament, the word leader is used less than 10 times. The word servant is used more than 1,000 times. There's a great statue of John Wesley in London. So it's a picture, you know, sort of a statued picture of John Wesley. He was five foot two, preached over 40,000 sermons. He founded what we know as the Methodist Church. At 83, he was angry at his doctor because he wouldn't let him preach more than 14 times a week. At 86, he wrote this in his journal. Laziness is slowly creeping in. There is an increasing tendency to stay in bed after 5.30 in the morning. On the statue, his quote says, Reader, if you feel constrained to praise the instrument, don't. Give God the glory. See, no, no matter how big your stature is, in size or in looks or in popularity or in power with God's word, we're all instruments. We're all servants. God picks us up at his time. He uses us for his purpose at his time. And we're not giving glory to the instrument. We're giving glory to God. And so no matter how powerful or dynamic a leader we have here, it's Christ alone. It's not a pastor. It's not a group of elders. It's not a figure in church history. It's not a founding member. It's not a vision. It's not a dream. It's not a confession. It's not a ministry style. It's Jesus. And we're all serving him. So we have to have the right person. We have to have the right kind of person. Secondly, we have to have God's word. When you, when one of the things that you do when you're building a fence, you establish a plumb line. You know what that is? It's just a, like a chalk line. You make sure everything's straight. So I was having a problem getting my fence to be, you know, on, on, not on the line. I was tilting up, but you could have a problem keeping next to the line. Your fence kind of looks like a wave. You wouldn't want that. So you drop a plumb line because you know it's straight. And you always want to bump up yourself against this straight line to say, am I, am, am I in the right place? It's a fixed point that we measure ourselves against. And God is trying to say, you got to, my fixed point is the word. And you see a verbal illustration and a visual illustration. Chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Be strong and courageous. Be careful to do everything written in it. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Don't get a quarter of an inch off. The word of God shall not depart from your mouth. You've got to meditate on it day and night. So there's this verbal exhortation God is giving to Joshua. You, you can't get off, Joshua. You're, you're just about ready to go into the promised land. And you're going to lead these people. Don't, you can't move even a quarter of an inch. Because God knows there's going to be all kinds of distractions from the world that would cause Joshua to move. Some of you know that when you train to become a pilot... You get what's called a visual rating first. And so you, what happens is you just take up a little uh, plane and you can fly. You learn to fly only when you can see the surrounding, uh, you know, area. It's a visual rating. You, you fly according to the terrain that you see. Now, you do have instruments, but the very first rating you get is just just where you can see. So after your first first rating, you can't fly in a cloud. You can't fly in fog. You can only fly when you can see what's going on. 
But if you want to progress past that and you want what's called an instrument rating, meaning you don't have to fly according to what you see you, you, uh, on the ground, you fly according to the instruments. So whatever the instruments say, you, can fly, you just fly according to the instruments, no matter what the surrounding area may look like. And the reason for that is because if you go into a big cloud or a big fog bank in a plane and you're the pilot, you easily get disoriented. So easily that you could fly out of the fog bank and be upside down, and you would have thought you were right set up the whole time. There have been people, famous people, who have flown themselves into the ground thinking they were still flying this way because they got disoriented. They, they, they just couldn't keep their eyes on the panel, and they were trusting what their brain was saying. And they got disoriented from that. So you have to have an instrument rating to say, no matter how I feel right now, I'm going according to the instruments. I'm going according to the instruments. That's what you and I must have with the Bible. We're going to have all kinds of feelings and say, well, this sure feels like the right place. And we may be flying ourselves into the ground saying, this feels right, this feels right, boom. Lots of people have done that. So we have to have this instrument rating where we just don't turn to the right or left. We don't do anything unless the word of God is telling us this is the way that you should move. And so that's the what we're trying to do here at Christ Community Church. Now, Joshua, as a leader, he knows this is going to be difficult. Not maybe particularly for him, but for the people. He's already lived 40 years in this desert with these people. And sadly for him, he saw all these miracles to get them out of Egypt. They got across the Red Sea miraculously. God provided water and provided manna. And they get right up to the promised land. And you remember, God sends 12 spies, or Moses sends 12 spies into the promised land. Joshua was one of them. And Joshua comes back and says, oh, there's a great report. We should go. God is with us. And 10 of the 12 spies say, oh, my gosh, there's giants in the land. We can't possibly defeat giants. And they turn away, and they basically fly into the ground for 40 years. The whole purpose was for you to say, it's impossible. That was the whole purpose. So, you would rely on God. Do you realize that God puts you in places on his purpose that look impossible to you. It is his design that you and I get in places that you go, this is impossible. That's the whole point I have you here, Paul. Because if it's always possible, who's going to get the glory? Yeah, me. Look what I did. But when you get in possible situations, if you come through, you say, oh my goodness, that, that was all God. And that was the whole plan. Bring these people up who have impossibly been rescued from Egypt to know, well, we've been rescued from Egypt. Surely God's going to be with us. And at that point, they say, we can't do it. And they turn around. So Joshua understands it's going to, it's going to take some, some cha- it's going to be challenging to get these people to really run alongside of the word of God. And then not only the verbal exhortation, but this visible illustration. They're, they're ready to cross the River Jordan. And God says, Joshua, I, wanna, I want you to take the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant is the Ten Commandments, 
the word of God. And I need you to have the priest to walk way out in front, a couple of hundred yards out in front, and then the people follow. And when the priests step into the River Jordan, it parts and the people will go across. Why so far out in front? Well, he says, you've never been this way before. And you'll get lost. And I don't want anybody to think anybody else is doing the leading except for me and my word. That's exactly why we have that space between the Bible reading and me preaching. I don't want anyone to come here and think that I've gotten too close to the word of God to be that voice. It stands apart from everything that we do, including me. And you have to go back and check and say, is what Paul said according to God's word. And so they create this space to make sure everybody knows that we're following after God. We're, we're following after his word. We're not just having a verbal exhortation. We've got this visible space that is helping us. The final point here is courage. So we have to have a leader. We have to have God's word leading us in then it's going to take courage on our part. God reminds Joshua, this great general, probably the greatest general in the Old Testament. Joshua, be strong and courageous. He says it three times. Why do you think he says it? Because Joshua might not be strong or courageous is what I think. And why would Joshua not be strong and courageous? Well, he might get a little nervous that he's actually going to enter this land now, and these people are bigger than them. He might be nervous about the people he's leading. They're not too trustworthy. So he might be feeling, I'm going to get arrows from the front, and I'm going to get arrows from the back. So Joshua has to has to have courage. I like how the section closes in chapter 4, 19 through 24. They, they cross over the promised land. And then Joshua says, one, of, one person from every tribe, 12 tribes, Go back and get a stone from the middle of the river. And then put the 12 stones together. It's called an Ebenezer. The Ebenezer means the stone of help. And you do it because the next generation might not know. But they'll come across this Ebenezer, these 12 stones, and say, how did these 12 stones get here? What happened? And then you'll be able to tell your people, God did something here. And it takes courage. It takes courage to launch something. In my office, I have a beautifully handwritten letter addressed to me in a folder. February 2002. One month before the first meeting. In the letter, it says, I feel strongly in my spirit that it's not God's will for you to start the church. See, it takes courage. It takes courage to do what you feel like God's wanting you to do. And you're going to have to stand against some people who aren't going to want to go in that direction for whatever reason. And then it takes courage to keep moving forward. I am more convinced now than I was 15 years ago, and I thought I was pretty convinced 15 years ago, that Christ Community Church is essential for Wilmington, North Carolina. I mean, we're not the only church in town. I'm not trying to put us at the top of the heat. I'm just saying what we're trying to do here, Wilmington desperately needs. 
and more and more people are being affected, whether it's in our community or it's in Romania or the 10 pastors that we now help in India. And so it's going to take, it's going to take courage as we go forward. There's going to be new things that we're going to have to adapt to. And it's going to take courage. It's going to cause us to be uncomfortable. It's going to cause us maybe to be nervous and say, well, this seems impossible. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. We want to get in places that seem impossible. That's the whole purpose. So that in 15 or 20 or 30 years from now, I come back and preach sometime and I say, it's amazing what God has done. No one would take credit for this because only God could have done it. Now, you look at Joshua and you know there is a true and better Joshua. Jesus is the true servant. He's the leader who comes and and he says, I'm the word. I'm not just the servant. I'm the word. And if you follow me, I know the way. I, I know the way home. And then there's the empty tomb, which is the final Ebenezer stone. A reminder of what God has done. He's conquered death itself. And he's going to come back and bring us home. After that very first sermon, or that very first Founders Day sermon, Kenny Smith, a member of our church, he came right up to me afterwards. That Hey, that was a wonderful sermon. That was awesome. But we'll see if you can keep doing it. You know, it's like easy to say, but then hard to keep going. And I was like, what's your name again? You know. Um, it's been 15 years. We're still doing it. And my hope is for 15 or 1,500 years or however long Jesus waits to come back, there'll be a church named Christ Community in Wilmington that will keep trusting the instrument of God's word. People will say, there's all kinds of things in the world, all kinds of feelings, but I'm going to trust his word. I'm going to trust the power and the work of the Holy Spirit so that when I come across impossible things, God will work and will say, all glory to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful. It's miraculous that we're sitting in this building. We're standing on this stage. We have this facility. We have...